Welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills IP podcast. Today's subject is plausibility in patent law. My name is Rachel Montagnon and I'm a professional support consultant with our IP group. I'm joined today by Senior Associate Andrew Wells. Andrew, where has the idea of plausibility in patent law come from? Well, it goes back to the EPO originally, that's where it arose, um, and it's a, an evidential requirement essentially and it's relevant to both assessing inventive step um, and also uh, insufficiency. The idea of the requirement was to prevent speculative patent claims um, from being filed by applicants with the effect of, of reserving an area of research that they hadn't in fact invented at the time uh, and then claiming later uh, whatever other people arrived at within the scope of a very broad broad patent. Um, it goes back to the kind of fundamental tenet of, of EPO law that the scope of the monopoly needs to match the technical contribution to the art. So we hear a lot about these cases and Agrivo in this context. Can you summarise the EPO approach to inventive step for us and how plausibility fits in? Yeah, so um, there are a couple of key cases in this area. Um, the EPO obviously uses the problem solution approach um, and as part of that process, in, in line with the other case law from the EPO, you have to ask a few questions. Um, the first is whether the patentee has demonstrated um, that the claimed invention in fact solves the problem that the patent purports to have solved uh, across the breadth of the claim. That's where a grievo comes in. The second question is the plausibility one uh, and asks whether the patentee has demonstrated by reference only to information that's either in the specification or would have been evident uh, read through the light of the common general knowledge. Um, using that as a starting point, has the patent made it plausible that the claimed invention solves the question? So is it more than just speculation? And that comes from the case Johns Hopkins, which is, is one that's often referred to. And finally, only if you've got uh, an invention and a patent that passes both those evidential tests can you go on to ask the question of whether or not the solution that the patent's proposing is obvious. How does plausibility work for insufficiency then? That's the SALT case from the EPO, uh, w which works on a similar idea. It says that where a claim includes a functional technical feature, so for example that the claim compound is useful for a particular therapeutic purpose, the patent specification needs to provide some information indicating that the claim compound has a direct effect on a metabolic mechanism specifically involved in the disease in question. So the whole idea of this is to strike a balance between, on the one hand, say a patent that just gives a simple verbal statement that compound X can be used to treat disease Y, and the EPO said that's not enough, that's speculative. But on the other hand, the EPO is saying you don't need to go as far as providing absolute proof or clinical or animal trial data that conclusively demonstrates that a compound treats the disease in question. Because what they're trying to do is strike a sufficient balance to incentivize innovation, not stifle it, but while also not allowing speculative patents at the other end of the spectrum. So what's the approach to plausibility in the English courts? Well, there have been a, quite a few cases in the last decade or so in, in the UK, particularly in relation to pharma, where plausibility has been grappled with. Um, and essentially, the general principles that the English courts adopt track those which the EPO has been developing and that we've been talking about. The most recent significant example in the UK is the Supreme Court considering plausibility in the context of sufficiency in the generics and Warner-Lambert case, and that was the first time that the issue of plausibility per se had got to our Supreme Court. Um, in that case, the, the court was divided, 
uh, but the majority uh, ultimately effectively backed the approach in, in Salk that I've described uh, and sort of adopted it pr pretty much wholesale, I would say. Um, and w w when you look at that decision, it's clear that there's no rigorous, uh, easily identifiable threshold that you can apply in every case to say, is this or is this not plausible? So there's no absolute requirement for a particular type of experimental data. Um, the, the courts are going to assess things on the specific facts of the case, both in the UK and at the EPO, and they'll have to take into account the content of the patent specification and also the skilled person's common general knowledge. And on the one hand, uh, I've seen it said that that's no good because it's unsatisfactorily vague. So how is anyone going to know where they are? Um, how can they possibly assess this properly? But on the other hand, um, th there are a lot of detailed sort of guidelines as to how to assess plausibility in these decisions, including the Supreme Courts. Um, and then while it's not a rigid approach, it does, I think, give the courts the leeway to do justice to a particular scenario on the facts where a, a very rigid threshold might not. Where do you think plausibility is going? Well, I think although Warner-Lambert strictly dealt with plausibility in the context of the sufficiency of a second medical use claim, I suspect we'll see it um, more broadly applied. It's already happened for a, a medical use claim more generally, and I don't see any reason for it to be limited to pharma, so it could easily apply to other sorts of patents generally. Uh, I think the approach will also be applied in the context of inventive step. I think it's very unlikely that a different approach would be taken. And then we've also already seen uh, plausibility relevant to industrial applicability, priority and anticipation. Uh, those were pre-Warner-Lambert, so it'll be interesting to see how things develop. But they were again used as a sort of evidential requirement in those contexts. So what are the practical implications of all this for innovators and patentees? It really comes down to what's included in patent applications. Um, I don't think there'll be many innovators out there who sit around with loads of data about an invention but then put none of it in a patent when they're applying. Um, but maybe this series of decisions in this area of law gives people pause for thought in deciding w exactly when in the process to file a patent application and, and what to include or whether to wait a little longer before filing. Um, clearly, there is no hard and fast rule on plausibility as we've discussed um, so you don't always have to include data but certainly uh, from the perspective of analyzing plausibility at least the more data and information that's included in a patent application the safer you're going to be when making that application um, it's also important to make sure that if you're putting data and information into a patent it relates to the specific use which you're trying to protect in any given claim and do look at the subclaims as well uh, for example, in relation to sufficiency, um, but also relates to the problem which the invention said to solve in relation to inventive step. Uh, there have been cases where there's lots of data in a patent, but it's been directed to a different use and therefore difficulties arise. And in fact, that was the case in Warner-Lambert itself. Thank you very much, Andrew. I hope those of you listening have found this podcast useful. If you have any queries, do contact either Andrew or me. Our details are posted on this podcast on our Intellectual Property Notes blog at www.hsfnotes.com slash ip slash. Do subscribe to our blog if you haven't already for more podcasts and for updates on all aspects of IP law and practice.